For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Back in Luke, Jesus is talking again about one of his favorite subjects, money. We studied this last week. We learned how to be a, a shrewd spiritual investor, how we've got a very limited amount of time left in this world, and we need to use the money we've got to try to lay up treasures in heaven while we still can. Well, the Pharisees were listening to this teaching, and they didn't like what Jesus was saying at all. It says the Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this, and they were sneering at Jesus. Literally, the verb means to turn up one's nose. And so they've moved from just the grumbling over here in the corner, to just outright sneering defiance and opposition to Jesus. And it says they loved money. They had this teaching about money that said, if you had wealth, that was a sign that you were righteous and that you were blessed by God. And wouldn't you know it, the Pharisees were wealthy. Isn't that convenient? If you were poor, though, that was a sign that you were under the judgment of God. God wasn't happy with you for some reason. And so this was just one of, one of many ways that they justified themselves and viewed themselves as self-righteous, as righteous in the eyes of people. And Jesus, he's, he's sick of it. He says, you guys are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. He says, I'm sick of this teaching you have on money. It is so cruel and pitiless and uncompassionate. He says, you need to stop justifying yourself before people and start worrying about what God thinks. I wonder if some of us have this problem as well. Too worried about what other people think, not worried enough about what God thinks. He also says, your use of money and your treatment of the poor are detestable in the sight of God. Not a sign of your righteousness and your blessedness by God. No, actually just the opposite. They're actually a sign that God is unhappy with you. And then he goes on to tell them a story about a guy who, like them, was a lover of money. We'll skip a couple verses we don't have time to cover. And it says, there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived or feasted each day in luxury. Yes, he feasted. This is feasting. At his gate, though, was a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. Ugh, disgusting. In fact, as Lazarus lie there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. That is really gross. Man, somebody should do something about that guy at my gate. And so these are two guys who are in very different places. The two men in this parable, the rich man and Lazarus. You know, on the one hand, when, with regard to their clothing, the rich man was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen. And we see purple and we're like, what's the big deal about purple? <laughs> I mean, nowadays, purple is pretty cheap, right? <laughs> you could get purple for pennies on the dollar. Back then, they didn't just have a purple factory. They didn't have the chemical processing that we have today. If they wanted purple, they had to collect these. This is the murex, otherwise known as literally the purple fish. I'm serious. It's a sea snail that's essentially purple, and they would have to, these are only an inch or two or three long. You can find a video on YouTube of a guy cracking one of these open and extracting the purple stuff in there. 
And you have to collect hundreds of these to make dye to dye things purple. It's a very painstaking process. Well, you know, it's hard to imagine this level of luxury. You know, when it comes to clothing, you'd have to be clothed in the most luxurious clothes imaginable. Versace, Louis Vuitton, Oscar de la Renta. <laughs> you'd be showing up in that outfit, driving up in your Lamborghini, your Ferrari. This is the sort of circles that this rich man was running in if he's wearing purple. Also, fine linen. The purple referred to his outer garments. The linen referred to his undergarments. So this guy had nothing but the finest linen underwear. <laughs> Meanwhile, <clears throat> Lazarus, he had a different covering. Open wounds, sores all over his body. Not enough rags to cover those to keep the dogs away. Yeah, when it comes to clothing, uh, th- th- these two men were uh, th- like they were in different, different planets. Also, another necessity of life, food. You can see some key differences here as well. On the one hand, the rich man feasted each day in luxury. You know, we saw a couple weeks ago in chapter 15, the, the father, the wealthy father, killed the fattened calf to celebrate the return of his lost son. This guy probably had herds of fattened calves. Each day he could eat a fattened calf. He'd be like, what are we having for lunch today? I don't know. Maybe we should kill another fattened calf. Oh, I'm sick of fattened calves. What else do we have? This sort of extreme luxury, this, this is how this guy would feast each day. On the other hand, Lazarus, he would just lie there. In fact, not he would lie there, he was laid there, which implies that he was probably a cripple, not a leper. He would have been outside the city. He wouldn't have been begging in public if he was a leper. These were just these were open sores that he had all over his body. And uh, this guy, he was longing, he would just lie there and long, he would just wish so badly that he could get one of those scraps that would fall off this guy's table. Maybe referring to what they would do to clean up, they would take the last little scrap of bread that nobody wanted, they would kind of use it almost as like a little um, um, washcloth. They would use that bread to kind of mop up the last little bit of grease or gravy from whatever they ate, and then they would toss it down into the table for the dogs. And Lazarus just looks at that and he thought, man, maybe one day they would toss that to me. Really hurting. You know, when it comes to shelter, what are the necessities? Food, uh, clothing, and shelter. The rich man definitely had a leg up on Lazarus as well. You know, it says that this guy had a gate. He had a house with a gate. This word for gate, this refers to the, um, the entrances to temples and palaces. That's what this Greek word was used for. It's used in, in Revelation to describe the entrance to the heavenly Jerusalem. It's also used to describe the entrance to the great ancient city of Babylon, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. This guy lived in a mansion. Well, Lazarus also had a gate. that belonged to the rich guy that he would kind of sleep near, that the dogs would share with him as well. Yeah, he didn't have the protection from the elements or the wild animals. You know, when we think of dogs, we romanticize them, and we think of them there with his faithful rover, you know, his little puppy there through thick and thin, licking his wounds and nursing him back to health. That's not the kind of image we need to get here. When they, when they thought, you know, dogs in their, in their picture were not what American dogs are. These were packs of mangy, roaming scavengers. Think, think a flock of vultures 
or whatever vultures travel in. <laughs> Think swarms of flies landing in his wounds and laying their maggot eggs in there. You know, here's the picture. You know, you think about... Think about this, this pack of mangy dogs coming up to Lazarus and licking his wounds, basically feasting on him, infecting him. Or if that's not gross enough, maybe a dog that looked like this. <laughs> licking his sores. Yeah. And they would have looked at this picture, the rich man and Lazarus, and they would have just thought, this guy, this rich man is blessed by God. He must be so righteous. God is so pleased with him. Lazarus, on the other hand, is viewed as pitiful. Not blessed by God, cursed by God. Lazarus suffers alone, in silence, never says a word the whole time. And then... He dies in verse 22. A couple things we should notice, though, before we move on. Notice that only one of these men are named. You have Lazarus, and then you just have some rich guy. And that, what that tells me is the importance here. The value is actually put on the guy who's got the name, not just some generic rich dude, not just some generic poor dude, but Lazarus. And I think what this really reflects is the biblical emphasis throughout Scripture of God's concern for the poor. God, you know, poor people, they feel powerless. They feel like nobody sees, nobody cares. But what you need to see is that God does see, and God does care. And we see this taught again and again throughout Scripture. For example, Proverbs 14, 31, He who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker... But he who is gracious to the needy honors him. Yeah, it's pretty easy to oppress the poor usually, especially back in this culture, but even today. Easy. The rich have so many advantages that the poor simply don't have. And God says, if you oppress the poor, then you are, are insulting me, God says. He says, he who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be answered. You know, turning a blind ear, a blind eye to the poor, God says, don't do that. Don't do that. He says, you, you must not do that. You must not shut your ear to the cry of the poor. Do you know why? Because I don't shut my ear to the cry of the poor. God knows the name. He knows the suffering of every poor person, every poor child in this world. He knows their history. He knows their feelings. He sees them as they, he sees the children as they cry themselves to sleep at night. God knows exactly, he knows the name of every one of the thousands of people who have died today from malnutrition and other preventable causes across the world. And God says, God says there may come a time when you're going to cry out for help and you're not going to get answered either. It's not going to feel too good when the shoe's on the other foot. So God sees and God cares about the poor and I'll tell you something else that I've learned from personal experience, and it's a corollary to these things. Satan hates the poor. Scripture says God has an enemy named Satan. He's kind of the mastermind behind evil. He hates the poor. 
I see this in the ministry that we try to do to people who are coming from poor backgrounds in this church and how hard it is, the obstacles they face, how the deck is stacked against them. I've seen people come to Christ, try to climb out of that poverty, only to have to be pounded on in ways that you just, you just often don't see. You know, Satan's the kind of being that when he sees an advantage, he presses it. If somebody's already down, he likes to come along and kick them. If somebody's, if somebody's already wounded, he likes to stab the knife in a little further and twist it a little bit. He will take any advantage he can. He's the, he's the author of racism and classism. It's one of his most effective ways of wreaking havoc and pain on the human race. He hates him. I believe that with all my heart. Proverbs say abundant food is in the fallow ground of the poor, but it's swept away by injustice. And then you hear these so-called wealthy Christians coming along, and they're like, oh God, do we have to hear about the poor again? Why are we always talking about the poor? Why don't you just get a job, people? That's what I did. Why is everybody so concerned about the poor? Well, God has something to say about that, too. The righteous is concerned for the rights of the poor. The wicked just doesn't understand such concern. Why are we so concerned about the poor, says the wicked. That's how God sees it. I would not want to be on the wrong side of God when it comes to this issue right here. And spiritual growth will mean a growing generosity and a growing care for the poor. Well, this rich guy didn't seem to have too much care for the poor guy by his gate. Who knows if he, how much he even noticed the guy. Notice, too, the other thing before we move on, is how close these guys are geographically, but how they exist in two completely different worlds. You know, they're within eyesight of each other. And yet, the worlds they live in are so different. And today... Fortunately, thanks to gentrification and national boundaries, you know, we, we tend to keep our poor people a little further from our middle class and wealthy people. You know, we can go whole days at a time without seeing poverty. But if you could put them right next to each other, you know, it would be pretty startling, about as startling as this picture that Jesus is painting as well. I, I grabbed just, just a few pictures here contrasting luxury and poverty. You know, you think about this woman right here on her yacht, sitting down for a lunch off some, I don't know, exotic, exotic, tropical location. And then you contrast this person also having lunch. And you look at the squalor, the filth, the malnutrition. These are two very different, different meals here with the flies buzzing around. Or you look at this woman carrying her bag. Maybe she's going off to pick up a few things at the store. She looks like she's doing pretty well here. Maybe wearing some of those designer clothing names I mentioned earlier. (laughs) And then you look at this little child here, also carrying her bag or his bag, playing down at the dump where all the trash ends up. Uh, Just right next to so many diseases probably not going to make it to adulthood, although I guess if this child's already made it this far, the chances are increased that they'll make it to adulthood. 
You look at these two here, they look pretty happy, pretty satisfied, very beautiful people. But then you look at this, this, this two very different beings. This little child, you can see the vulture moving in. That vulture knows it's probably good to hang out right here just a little bit longer, get some food. Uh, this little child is not going to make it unless someone intervenes. Then you just see, you can just stack up luxury upon luxury, vacation image. You know, this one right here with the wine and the beach, this woman with the beautiful clothes and the beautiful location, this yacht with the living room off the back. These two here reflecting their image in the, in the pool and the gorgeous sunset here. And then again, you just come up against the reality of how so much of the world lives. And you see the diseases, you can see the open sores. I don't know how many of us have ever even seen an open sore like this. The disease covering the skin, the malnutrition, and it's, this is, this is Lazarus right here. This is the Lazarus life contrasted with the rich man. That rich man doesn't have a name. It could be anybody. It could be, oh, it could be one of us. Lazarus, though, has a name. And this is, this is the kind of feelings that this picture would have evoked that Jesus is painting. Well, finally the poor man died, which would be the saddest possible end of this story if that was all there was. But fortunately, that's not all there is. That's not the end of the story. Because the Bible says that at that moment, that poor man, Lazarus, was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham, the father of the Jewish race, one of the great, the great patriarchs from the Old Testament. Abraham, still alive and well in the presence of God and in the presence of this guy, Lazarus. The rich man also died and was buried. Where did he go? His soul went to the place of the dead. And there in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. Well, you know, this is a parable. It's not a historical account. There's, we don't know how closely this matches the actual afterlife. You know, there's probably some details that had to be changed just to be able to make the story work. So I guess, I don't know how far we want to press these details, but I do think there's a lot of truth we can learn about the afterlife from this, especially because how this matches up with the teachings and the rest of Scripture on this subject. And it says there's two different places that people go when they die. And this, in Scripture, these are called the inter, these intermediate states, you know. These two guys end up in two very different places. You know, we, we saw at the beginning of this story they were in two very different places, but now they're in two very different places, but they've kind of switched places, haven't they? As Jesus said, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. The great reversal of the kingdom of God. And these guys end up in what's called the intermediate states. You know, this is not, um, you know, it's Scripture talks about there, there are two places that people go when they die, and these are not the final places people will end up. These are places that they wait on their way to the final judgment, which will usher them into the final destination. 
You know, the final destination for a guy like Lazarus is called heaven. And in Randy Alcorn's book on heaven, he, he distinguishes, he calls it the temporary heaven or the present heaven and the eternal heaven, because there is a place where people go. This is uh, known sometimes as, here it says, uh, Abraham at his side. Or uh, in some, some older translations, it's called Abraham's bosom, <laughs> which <laughs> really doesn't accurately describe it. <laughs> it kind of carries different connotations now. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Jesus calls this paradise. He says to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. And so this place... This is apparently where God is, is where Jesus went to after his death, apparently where he is now. This is where people go that are awaiting heaven. People who have, have, have a relationship with Christ, who've been forgiven. On the other hand, the rich man went to the place of the dead, sometimes called Hades. This is the temporary resting point on the way to what the Bible calls hell. Sometimes it uses the word Gehenna, not Gehenna, Gehenna. Gehenna's actually a very nice place. <laughs> Gehenna. And, uh, but, you know, it, these intermediate states, they're, they're not, in principle, they're really not that much different than the final states, okay? We can kind of see that here from this parable. Well, the rich man shouts across, okay, so this is one of the features that probably isn't there in the real intermediate states in heaven and hell. He says, Father Abraham, so this guy's a Jew. Not only is he rich, he's a Jew. And where does he find himself? They thought if you were wealthy and you were a Jew, you were definitely going to heaven. He says, Father Abraham, have some pity on me. The one who showed no pity is now calling out for pity. He says, could you just send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue? I'm in anguish in these flames. So I think we can learn several things about hell from this parable. Truths that are backed up in other places in Scripture, but demonstrated very vividly here. You know, for one, hell's a painful place. A place of torment. A place of anguish, it says in, in these two verses. You know, it uses flames. Flames are only one picture of the pain of hell. You know, Rev 14.10 talks about the flames and the burning of hell. It says this is the, the, the cup of God's fury. He's filled up with the wine of his wrath. This is the, the, the judgment of God being poured out. That's what the flames depict. Can't be literal flames, though, because hell is also pictured as a lot of other things, like a place of darkness. Mark, Jesus, and Jesus calls it in Mark, he says it's where the maggots never die. They would definitely die in real flames. Uh, the outer darkness. You can't have flames which produce light and darkness. And yet the darkness pictures more a place of loneliness, a place of isolation, a place where you don't know what's happening, you don't know why you're in pain, but you're in pain. He says, uh, it talks about being cut into pieces and receiving lashes in Luke 12. Again, kind of more active picture of judgment here. The weeping and gnashing of teeth we saw a few weeks ago in Luke 13. Not a pleasant picture. That's, that's the picture, that's extreme sorrow. That's the, the grinding of your teeth when you know you've messed up. When you know that I'm in this position and it's of my own doing. When you realize that eternal bliss was within my grasp my whole life, and yet I never reached out for it. And now I'm here instead. And so hell, it's a painful place. 
It's not just this big party, you know, where I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. And where, you know, hell just seems like so much more fun. It's the worst place imaginable. You can see Jesus is reaching to the very limits of human language to try to describe the pain of hell. And it's still nothing, nothing anywhere close. It's so much worse than what he's describing here. It's, not a, it's, it's a place you don't want to go. Remember, too, this is Christ's teaching. Every one of these verses I'm reading here is Jesus Christ teaching on hell. Some people are like, well, I just follow the teachings of Christ. What about this one? Do you believe what Jesus taught on hell? He taught more than anybody on it. This is not something that I've come up with or some angry Christian came up with. This is something that God came up with and revealed through his son. It's it's tragic that anyone would go here. Abraham responds, he says, son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted. Lazarus had nothing. And so now he's here being comforted and you're in anguish. In other words, no, your pain cannot be relieved in any way. And we learn a couple more things about hell here. For one, hell's a conscious place. It was implied earlier, more explicitly stated here. Think about this. You retain your identity. He still calls him Lazarus. He's still the same rich guy he was on earth. You remember your lifetime. He says, remember during your lifetime? It's not like our memory is wiped. No, we remember our time on earth. He also, you also know where you are, and you know about heaven, too. We're not some, like, you know, brainless amoeba at this point. We know who we are, where we are. Scripture says you get a, you get a new body, too. Even though this body will decay, you get a new one, whether you're going to heaven or hell. You know about heaven. You, he can see this as a place of comfort, a place of mercy. That's something completely lacking in hell. You know, in heaven... We see God moving in to comfort those who've been oppressed. God knows every every ounce of suffering you've ever suffered. He knows every tear you've ever shed. And he's going to move in and he's going to wipe away every one of those tears. And there's going to be no more crying or death or pain because all things are made new. Hell doesn't get any of those benefits. It's just the opposite. It's the end of everything good. And it's a conscious place. Also, hell is a just place. You see the protests of the rich man, and he's like, look, I mean, you got some good things on earth. You lived your life, and now you're basically getting what you deserve. Everyone in hell will deserve to be there, Scripture says. No one's going to be there, and just it's like they got, you know... Some sort of lawyer messed him over and the evidence wasn't presented properly. No, there's none of that when it comes to hell. You've got the righteous judge who knows all and sees every thought. He has the books of works where he's going to roll out every deed you've ever done. Some people wonder, how can a good God send anyone to hell? And they object to that. Well, one thing that that question reveals is you don't realize how bad your sin is. You You don't even notice 99% 99% of your sin. And you know, the same person on the one hand, they'll, they'll shake their fist and they'll demand justice and they'll complain about things not being fair, but then they don't want the same standard to apply to them. God is a just God. You also don't understand, obviously, how much God has done. 
You see, God has done everything to keep anyone from going to hell. He sent his one and only son who took the punishment we deserved. He hung on the cross. He didn't deserve any of it. And he offers that as a free gift to anyone who admits they deserve that and will come to Christ and ask for his forgiveness. The question shouldn't be, how could God send anyone to hell? The question should be, how could anyone reject everything God has done to keep you from going to hell? I want to clarify, too, this rich guy wasn't in hell because he was rich. There are rich people who go to heaven. Abraham was pretty wealthy, actually. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul gives instructions. He says to those Christians who are rich in this life, here's what I want you to do with your money. Don't trust in your wealth. Be rich, generous in good deeds and generous in general. No, the problem was he slipped into that calloused spiritual coma that wealth so often brings. As I said last time, we should be a little afraid of wealth because of how it makes us feel like we don't need God and we, we, we just forget God's even there and we don't need him. No, this guy never took the time to get right with God. He was too busy feasting luxuriantly every day and enjoying his fancy clothes and his beautiful house. And that's what we see a lot of times. Heaven is a just place too. Let's not forget about that as well. On our own, by our own works, we could never get to heaven. But because of Christ's forgiveness, we're declared perfectly innocent. We're adopted as his son or daughter. And so as a result, everyone in heaven actually totally deserves to be there, thanks to what Jesus has done. Abraham goes on, he says, look, besides, there's a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. And so a fourth and final thing we learn about hell is that hell's a permanent place. He talks about this great chasm. I don't know that's a literal chasm, but it certainly shows a great, an incrossable barrier, uncrossable barrier. You know, there's no hanging out with people in heaven or switching over once you get there. It's not like you can try them both out and see which one you like. Hebrews says it's appointed for, human, for people to die once and then face judgment. It's eternal, too. It's not like we're snuffed out. I mean, I, as much as, as attractive as that would be, that people are snuffed out and they cease to exist forever, there's too much scripture that, that, that teaches that it's an eternal conscious place. And so once your, your destiny is determined at death, that's what you got. That's what you're dealing with for eternity. And th that's why God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. As surely as I live, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I want people to turn to me so they may live. That's what he says in Ezekiel 33:11. God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. Some Christians talk about hell like they're so excited about it. They seem to relish the torments of hell. God doesn't feel that way. I definitely don't feel that way. I don't like this at all. I wouldn't be teaching it if it wasn't right here in this passage tonight. And throughout the pages of Scripture, I'm not going to deny what God has declared to be true. But this is a reality. And this is why I don't want to go there and why I've taken measures to ensure that I won't. 
I've entrusted my soul to Christ. You should do that too. Well, the rich man said, please, Father Abraham, if he can't come over to me and give me some relief, at least send him to my father's home. I've got five brothers. I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. They got the Bible. Read that. He says, no, Father Abraham, wrong. If someone is sent to them from the dead, they will repent of their sins and turn to God. It's too little too late for this guy. He realized too late. Now he's, he kind of seems like he's changed his mind. He wants somebody to go warn his brothers. But, you know, has he really even changed that much? I mean, you think about, what is this guy like now? For one, he's blaming God for the position he's in. It's like, God, if you'd only warned me enough, if you only warned people enough, maybe I wouldn't be here. Maybe they wouldn't be here too. He's devaluing the scriptures. He's saying the, by, the word of God is not enough when God seems to think that it is. He's disagreeing with Abraham, telling him he's wrong repeatedly. This guy's bossing Lazarus around. Oh, Lazarus, can you fetch me some water? Oh, Lazarus, go tell my brothers what's happening here. Oh, Lazarus, oh, servant boy. It's like Lazarus is still the the cripple out by his gate. He never even asked to get out. He just wants a little relief, just a drop. Yeah, it's hard to tell how much his perspective has even changed now that he's in hell. Of course, uh, C.S. Lewis, I quoted this a few weeks ago, but he says, there's only two kinds of people in this world. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, all right then, have it your way. You don't have to be with me if you don't want to. I want to st- here, I also want to speak to some of us have had loved ones die who weren't believers like this rich man. And it's hard to know how to think about that situation. Uh, I've even talked to people who are like, I don't want to accept Christ because what that will mean is that it's accepting the reality that this person who I loved is in hell. A couple points to keep in mind as we think about that. For one, you don't know the person's heart. You don't know what kind of dealings they had with the Lord before they died. Is it possible that they had a Christian friend talk with them about Christ? Is it possible they received Christ before they died and you didn't even know about it and that you won't even know until you get there? A couple weeks ago, my cousin committed suicide. He had been uh, struggling with depression, tormented by depression for many years, and finally decided to make the permanent, terrible decision to take his own life. And when I went to the funeral, they asked me to to give, give the message at the funeral, and I talked about how sad all of this is, how this is nobody's fault, 
in that room. It's, it's, it was his fault, his decision to take his life, how people in that room actually tried so hard to help him, how lucky he was to have parents and friends like that. But I also said the most hopeful thing here is there's some things that I don't think a lot of people here know about my cousin. Because about six years ago, he started initiating with me talking about spiritual things. He knew that my brother and I were, were following God. He was an atheist at the time. And as I looked back on my email and Facebook messages with him, at that funeral, I just started rolling out quotes from our conversations, how he moved from unbelief to believing in the concept of a God to the point where he came around and he put his faith in Jesus Christ. I read emails talking about the joy that he felt, the closeness he felt with God. And then he got too busy to pursue spiritual growth. You see this sometimes with people where they, they come to Christ and this joy comes in and their life starts to come together and then they feel like, I got it now. And he headed down a spiral that lasted five years that ended with him taking his life. But at that funeral, I had, I had Christians in that crowd coming after me afterwards saying, I had no idea. Thank you so much for those conversations and for telling us about this. wonder how many of those there are, there are going to be when we get to heaven. So you don't know the person's heart. Also, your belief won't change where they are. If they are in hell, it doesn't matter whether or not you believe in Christ. That's not going to change their destiny. It also doesn't even mean you're not going to have a relationship with them. Hell is the loneliest place in, the, in, in, the crea- in creation. And so it's not going to change that. Third, according to Jesus, they would come back and warn you if they could. Have you considered that? Jesus says, no, no, one is, no one's allowed to come back, apparently. It's not like, you know, Scrooge and Bob Marley, where he comes back from beyond the dead to warn him to change his ways. They can't. Jesus said the scriptures are good enough. Fortunately, unlike Lazarus' brothers, we have the scriptures. We have this story. Is it possible... Is it possible that there is someone in hell that would like to send you a message about the afterlife? And if so, it might be something along the lines this rich guy tried to send. Will you respond to the scriptures? Being in a privileged position that most people aren't. Abraham concludes, he says, you know, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets... They won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And our story ends with this loaded statement, obviously pregnant with meaning. He says, you know, miracles are really not that good for getting people to believe. They're they're just one more thing for the skeptic to explain away. He says, the scripture should be plenty. The scripture should be enough for you to believe. But we see there are layers of meaning here. Deeper meaning, you know, one, 
is a story that would take place in Jesus' life, an experience he would have maybe just a few months after this teaching right here. Shortly before his death, he gets a message that, about some really bad news about a friend of his who just happened to be named Lazarus. Different guy. The Lazarus in John 11 is, seems to be a little bit wealthier and very different from this Lazarus in this story. But the names are the same. He gets some news that this guy is sick to the point of death. They beg him to come and heal him before he dies, and Jesus stays where he is for a few more days. By the time he shows up, Lazarus' sister Martha comes out and says, where were you? If only you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And she's like, I know, at the final resurrection, he'll rise again. And Jesus says, no. He says, look at me, Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. And whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. And she says, I believe. And that's the basis for the eternal life. Jesus comes into this room of mourners at Lazarus' funeral. And as he looks around at death, he says he experienced two emotions. One is anger at the state of humanity, that human beings made in the image of God could die. And the other one, he begins to weep. And we see that God, how does he feel about death? He's angrier than you could ever be about it. And he's sadder than you could ever be about it. But then Jesus says, show me where the tomb is. And he goes out. And he says, roll away the stone. And Martha's like, um, he's been dead for like four days. <laughs> he's going to be stinky. People are trying to eat their green bean casserole. And the other food they bring to funerals. <laughs> and Jesus says, Martha, believe. And they roll the stone away and he says, Lazarus, come out. And out walks Lazarus. But then you know what happens? They unwrap him. People come from all around to meet this guy. And you know what the Pharisees do? They get even angrier and more determined to kill Jesus. And they were like, you better kill Lazarus too. And this time, let's make sure that he stays dead. A guy named Lazarus came back from the dead and it just made them more determined to kill Christ. That deceiver, that trickster. Well, the ultimate resurrection, this would point to as well, would be the resurrection of Christ. Who, who did raise from the dead and he came back and still so many people do not believe. He says the scripture should be enough. The prophecies, the pictures, the power of the scriptures should be enough to lead you to faith. Well, let's just draw a few conclusions about the two main pairs of issues this parable brings up. First of all, wealth and poverty. What do we learn about wealth and poverty? First of all, that wealth is not a sign of righteousness. Contrary to what they believed and what some of us may still be tempted to believe today. That God cares for the poor and he's mad when we don't. 
God does not look kindly on lack of concern and compassion for the poor. And that spiritual growth has got to include growth and generosity. That's just one of the ways God will change you. He will grow you in pity and compassion for the poor and generosity toward the poor. The other issue this raises is one of heaven and hell. And um, hell is real. It's not up for a vote. I guess I read a survey recently that said that over three-quarters of Americans believe in hell, but less than one-half of one percent think they're going to go there. Look, it doesn't matter whether we believe in hell or not. I would think probably the majority of people, people in hell did not, think, did not believe in hell and did not think they were going to end up there. It doesn't matter whether we think we're going to go there. It doesn't matter if we think we're good enough, because the truth is you're not good enough. No one can be good enough, because there's no one righteous. It's only through Christ that we can be guaranteed that we will pass out of death and into life. For those who believe in Jesus, I've got good news for you. This life is the closest to hell that you will ever get. It's also the furthest from heaven you'll ever be. And that death will usher you into a place where all the the evil and impurities are burned off and you're left with just the goodness and glory of God. But for those of us who are not believers in Christ, if you remain in that state, I've got some bad news for you. This life is the farthest from hell that you'll ever be and the closest to heaven that you'll ever be. And death will usher you not not into nothingness and not into eternal bliss, but into that sort of scene that we saw in this story that Jesus told tonight. The painful, just, eternal, conscious place. Wouldn't it be terrible if you sat through a whole teaching on hell and then you ended up going there? And then you'd have to sit and explain to God, not just for every one of your sins you've ever committed, not just for every one of the good deeds that you failed to do that you should have done, but you're also going to have to explain to him why on May 23rd, 2016, you sat, sat through this whole teaching out of the scriptures and you rejected it. You had a glimpse into the afterlife, a plea from someone there. And you rejected it, and God's going to say, what are you thinking? So you better have an answer ready. Because if Jesus is right, that's coming. God does not want you to go to hell. And that's why he's done everything to keep that from happening. That's why he sent his one and only son. So that whoever believes in him will not perish but will pass out of death and into eternal life. That's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Yeah, Lord, you're so patient with us and so good to us. I pray that we would reflect your patience and generosity and, and sacrifice as we turn out toward this hurting world, God. I pray that we would be good ambassadors with the, me- the message of Christ. And I pray that we would also be Christians that care for the poor and help them in ways that really help.
Uh, thank you for this message from beyond the grave tonight, Lord. And I pray that we would heed this and view life from this eternal perspective that's depicted here. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.